Welcome to New City Church. This is Matt Freeman, and we are so thankful you are studying the Word of God with us. Jesus founded New City after our forever home, the New Jerusalem from Revelation 21. He wrote our mission statement to foster, strengthen, and grow an unashamed bride looking for Jesus' return. Let's lean completely on the anointing of the Holy Spirit to teach us all things from 1 John 2.27. God is so eager to teach you the depth of his word. Enjoy the study. Well, good morning. We are undertaking a journey through the scripture this morning to study the birth and crowning of Jesus. And what a powerful time of year it is, this, this whole season when the whole world's looking toward the arrival of the king. And you know, as we dive into this, I do wanna say, you have to, what we're going to study today, I, I really want you to take, take it for what it's worth. You know, I'm, not, I'm not here to try to, to push any one uh, view or anything here on when Jesus showed up, but what I wanted to do is just go through the scripture and try to pull out some things that maybe have been lost over the years, you know, lost in tradition or lost in... Uh, understanding and, and people kind of not digging out what does the Bible really say about the arrival of Jesus and the birth of Jesus. And, you know, when you look at it from the scripture, it's amazing what's, what's in there and, and to pull out. And, but I do want to say, just use Acts 17.11, okay? It always applies to everything we study here at the church, but Acts 17.11, you know, take everything that we, that I share up here and use the Holy Spirit and filter it and search out the scriptures for yourself and find those things to be true or not. Just wanna encourage all of you to do that. So what is it about the birth of Jesus? You know, this whole, the whole world itself was turned upside down at the arrival of this baby, our king, and he showed up and literally transformed BC into AD. I mean, time is judged at the arrival of the, of the Messiah and the creator. But there are a lot of traditions surrounding God's arrival, Jesus's arrival, right? Mark seven thirteen says, making the word of God of none effect through your tradition, which ye have delivered and many such like things do ye. Colossians 2 verse eight, beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men after the rudiments of the world and not after Christ. It's amazing how the traditions and the rudiments of the world can frankly skew your view of the Bible. You know, it'll make you where you take something in and, you're, and you already have a, a preconceived notion on what it means, right? I mean, how many of you in your house right now have a nativity scene set up with three wise men? You know, it's just, it's ingrained in the culture. It's out there. Uh, the Bible doesn't say there were three. You know, why three? <laughs> we're actually going to look at that this morning. But it's, it's amazing. There's so many traditions out there. And the spirit of Antichrist seeks to change the times and the seasons from Daniel 7, verse 25. And he shall speak great words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and think to change times and laws and they shall be given into his hand until a time and times and the dividing of time. That's the last three and a half years of the tribulation. But so it's no wonder if the spirit of Antichrist wants to change seasons, times and seasons, that there would be so much confusion around the arrival of Jesus. Of course there'd be confusion because if you could change that, it would throw a lot of things off. But when was Jesus really born? What does the feast of trumpets have to do with it? And were there really three wise men? And where's Bethlehem at? These are all kind of some questions we're going to study today as we dive into this. You know, it's from a historian standpoint, 4 BC is widely assumed as the year of Jesus's birth. A lot of people mark it on the calendar as around then. However, it's based on a faulty conclusion uh, derived from Josephus. If you don't know Josephus, he was a Jewish historian a uh, father, uh, a historical father. He'd wrote all kinds of books. You can actually buy them on Amazon. The Antiquities of the Jews is what he wrote. But he just chronicled history. 
and he recorded an eclipse that was assumed to be on March 13th of 4 BC, and he wrote shortly before Herod died. So remember, Herod ruled in Israel when Jesus was there. That was more likely the eclipse that occurred on December 29th of 1 BC, because if you go and look at Irenaeus, he was born roughly a century after Jesus. He notes that the Lord Jesus was born in the 41st year of the reign of Augustus. Now, a lot of time had to elapse between Jesus's birth and Herod's death, because remember the family went to Egypt. Remember they fled to Egypt uh, to escape Herod's edict and did not return until after Herod's death. And that's all in Matthew chapter two, verses 15 through 22. So Herod died on January 14th of 1 BC, and that's in a, in a few ancient Jewish scrolls, you can find that. Okay, so that's when Herod died. What about the year 2 BC? So Tertullian, he was born around 160 AD. He stated that Augustus began to rule 41 years before the birth of Jesus and died 15 years after that event. Okay, so he has kind of two markers there. Augustus died on August 19th of 14 AD. So that would place Jesus's birth at 2 BC. Remember, there's no year zero. Remember when we studied the 70 weeks of Daniel, we looked at how there's no year zero and how that can kind of mess up the math a little bit. Tertullian also notes that Jesus was born 28 years after the death of Cleopatra, which we've also actually been studying in Zechariah. Remember Cleopatra, Cleopatra was one of the generals that took Egypt when Alexander the Great died and his kingdom was divided up. So he notes that, that Jesus was born 28 years after the death of Cleopatra in 38 BC. Again, that's consistent with a 2 BC dating. So since Augustus began his reign in the autumn of 43 BC, this is also consistent with a 2 BC birth year. So you kind of both, both things are honing in and pointing to that year. Now Eusebius, he's known as the father of church history. He ascribes it to the 42nd year of the reign of Augustus and the 28th year from the subjection of Egypt on the death of Mark, Anthony, and Cleopatra. So again, the 42nd year of Augustus ran from the autumn of 2 BC to the autumn of 1 BC. The subjugation of Egypt into the Roman Empire occurred in the autumn of 30 BC. So 28 years later, again, that would be in the autumn of 2 BC. The only date to meet both constraints is the autumn of 2 BC. So what about, so that's kind of from a historical perspective, just to give you a feel. What about from the Bible? You know, this is obviously the authority. Let's look at Luke chapter two, verses one through five. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And the taxing was first made when Serenius was governor of Syria. So there's another date for you. And all went to be taxed, everyone into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. So you remember the call, Caesar had everyone go back to their home city, their home village, to be taxed and to register in a census. So the, Ro the Roman administer, he would not have required registration in the winter because Judea is impassable. You can't make it around in those mountains in the winter. That's why Jesus in Matthew 24 tells the Jews that they to pray that the midpoint of the tribulation not fall in winter in Matthew 24, verse 20. But pray ye that your flight be not in winter, neither on the Sabbath day. Again, that's a hint as to how you know he's speaking to the Jews because you and I as a Gentile, why would we care if, the, if it happened on the Sabbath day? We could still move around and travel and do whatever. It wouldn't matter. But that's why he's, he's, Jesus has pointed this because it's to the Jews and those in Judea, you can't travel in the winter. It's the mountains are snowed over. It just won't happen. Okay, in Luke 2, verse 8, skipping down a few verses. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. 
So the flocks were in open field. The, the sheep are out at night in the open field and they don't do that after October. It's too cold. So another hint that something else is going on here. The shepherds also would not have stayed the night in the field if it were winter. They would shelter the animals and go stay indoors somewhere. Now Micah 5 verse 1 Now gather thyself in troops, O daughter of troops. He hath laid siege against us. They shall smite the judge of Israel with a rod upon the cheek. That's obviously Jesus. But thou Bethlehem Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. Okay, Bethlehem Ephrathah. Out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel. Therefore will he give them up until the time that she which travaileth hath brought forth, then the remnant of his brethren shall return unto the children of Israel. Okay, so Micah 5 tells us, 1 through 3, tells us where Jesus would come from, out of Bethlehem Ephrathah. Now there's two different Bethlehems in Israel, and this is what confuses people sometimes. Bethlehem of the tribe of Judah and Bethlehem of the tribe of Zebulun. So there's two different Bethlehems. Mary never lived in Bethlehem Ephrathah. So how would Jesus be born in that location? She lived a five to seven day journey north, but God moved Rome in such a way that they would end up there on time. So because of the census, that's where they had to go because of Joseph. Mary was never from there. Jesus's goings forth, and I love this in Micah 5, have been from eternity and everlasting. So just like when he was on the earth the first time and he controlled the date that he would be crucified so it'd fall on Passover, he also controlled the timing so that he was born on time according to Micah 5 in the right location, all of it perfect. He was in control of it and is going forth from everlasting. Joseph's hometown was that Bethlehem, Ephrathah, from Micah 5. So Rome was instituting a new tax, and you had to go to your hometown to register. So Joseph and Mary had to travel while Mary was pregnant at full term. Now, that would be really uncomfortable, I have to imagine, for Mary to be on a camel or a donkey or whatever and traveling five to seven days to this town to be taxed and to, and to register being fully with child. That'd be uncomfortable. But it's all from Luke 2, 1 through 5 that we just read. Bethlehem of the tribe of Judah is also known as Bethlehem Judah, Bethlehem of Judah, Judah Bethlehem of Judea, Bethlehem Ephrathah, Ephrathah, Ephrah, or the city of David. So you can find that name throughout the scripture. It's situated in the hill country, and was originally called Ephrathah or Ephrath, meaning fruitful. That's what the name means. And that's all from Genesis 35, verses 16, 19, 48, verse 7, Ruth 4:11, and its citizens were called Ephrathites. Uh, its name from Micah 5:2 is Bethlehem Ephrathah. Bethlehem Judah is from 1 Samuel 17, and the city of David from Luke 2. So just to give you a feel how the city has a lot of different names in the scripture, which sometimes can make it confusing. Okay, Bethlehem of the tribe of Judah is first mentioned in scripture as the place where Jacob, Israel's wife, Rachel, died. So if you remember that from Genesis 48, 7, and she was buried directly north of the city. Ruth and Naomi, remember the valley to the east was the scene of the story of Ruth and the Moabites in those fields. Remember, she gleaned with Naomi such an interesting thing, uh, God had a remedy for what we call welfare today in the Old Testament. Remember, you owned land, you would glean the fields, but you'd leave the corners. Uh, his commandment was you leave the corners of the field so that after you would take the gleaning and the harvest, then the poor would come behind you and glean the corners of your field so they too would be provided for. And it's amazing though, his provision was set up so that even if you were poor and didn't have anything though, you still had to go out and get it. And I just, I've always found that interesting that he would give them the opportunity to go gather. They just had to go do it. 
Okay, it's the birthplace of King David. So this Bethlehem was David's birthplace and where he was anointed as king by the prophet Samuel from 1 Samuel 16. It was from a well in this Bethlehem that three of David's heroes brought water for him at the risk of their lives when he took refuge in the cave of Adullam in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 23, 13 through 17. And ultimately, it's the birthplace of our King Jesus. And this Bethlehem is distinguished above every other city as the birthplace of the one whose goings forth have been of old. And so notice what God did in choosing that city. He chose the small to confound the wise. And I just love that because it's always the people God has used forever since the very beginning. It's always the people that really have nothing to offer. You know, the small, they're not famous. Uh, they don't have, you know, the accolades and the, the glamour or whatever, how the world sees success and who you should listen to. Uh, God always sets it up differently. And I love how he does that. He always chooses the small and the weak and the feeble to confound the wise and those that would reject him. In 1 Corinthians 1, verse 27, but God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. You know, that's our God. Bethlehem of the tribe of Zebulun is also known of Bethlehem, as Bethlehem of Zebulun, Bethlehem of Galilee, the Galilean Bethlehem, and Bethlehem Zoria. Uh, this Bethlehem is mentioned in, first, in Joshua 19:15 and was part of the inheritance for the tribe of Zebulun. The 10th ruler judge of Israel named uh, Ibzon came from this Bethlehem and later died there with his family as a reference. The city eventually became a Christian community much, much later and became a ruined village called Bethlehem. And it's located about six miles northwest of Nazareth. Uh, now today, it's a community for agriculture. You can go find that. If you're ever in Israel, you can go actually visit it and see that. But, okay, Elizabeth, remember Elizabeth, John's mother? She was the cousin of Mary and the wife of a priest named Zacharias. And she, he, he was of the course of Abijah. That's from Luke 1, kind of all throughout the first chapter of Luke. Priests were divided into 24 courses. Now, What's fascinating about that is I think it's a link as to why the Lord uses for us, the church, the 24 elders in Revelation 4 and 5. It's kind of a link to how he divided the priesthood all the way back in Leviticus and um, 1 Chronicles 24. Uh, David did that. David divided the priesthood into these 24 courses. The course of Abijah, which is Elizabeth's husband, John's, John's father, he was of the eighth course, okay? That's from 1 Chronicles 24, verse 10. Now, the temple was destroyed by Titus on August 5th of 70 AD. The first course of priests had just taken the office, okay? That's from Josephus and the Talmud. So if you go, if you go from that date and you work backwards, Zacharias would have ended his officiating term on July 13th of 3 BC, and if the birth of John took place 280 days later, it would have been April 19th of, to 20th of 2 BC, ironically during the week of Passover that year. So John the Baptist was likely born during the week of Passover. So if John was born April 19th to 20th of 2 BC, his 30th birthday, remember the priests were anointed to start service on their 30th birthday, it would have been April 19th to 20th of 29 AD or in the 15th year of Tiberius. Again, remember, there's no year zero. The minimum age for priesthood was 30. That's from Numbers 4. So John began his ministry in the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar, likely on his 30th birthday from Luke chapter 3. So Augustus died August 19th of 14 AD, which was the ascension year uh, for Tiberius, and this all seems again to confirm that kind of 2 BC dating for Jesus' birth. Since John was five months older than Jesus, it would, have con it would confirm an autumn birth for King Jesus in 2 BC. 
Remember Elizabeth hid herself for five months and then Gabriel announces to Mary both Elizabeth's condition and that she would also bear a son named Jesus. And Mary went with haste to visit Elizabeth who was then in the first week of her sixth month or the fourth week of December in 3 BC. That's on Luke chapter one, verse 36. So if Jesus was born 280 days later, it would place his, the date of his birth as September 29th of 2 BC. All of those things kind of colliding and converging to about that time frame. So that date, that year would fall on the Feast of Trumpets. Now that I find fascinating because that would also explain why there was no room at the inn for Mary and Joseph in Luke 2 verse 7 because Judea would have likely had an additional million or more people coming in from all around the countryside to stay. It's one of the one of the feasts where everyone was required to come to Judea to celebrate. So that's why there was no room at the inn because it was on the Feast of Trumpets. And that's all from Leviticus 23, Numbers 29.1 and uh, Rosh Hashanah. Okay, if you look at Luke chapter one, 26 through 33, in the sixth more month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God unto a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph to the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came in unto her and said, Hail thou that art highly favored. Now, Mary, Mary has a very obviously special place in the Bible. Um, she is not to be worshiped. She's not Jesus. But God chose her so specifically to carry the Son of God. I mean, that's incredible. I, I'm excited to meet Mary and talk to her about what was Jesus like, you know, when he was little? What, what was he like? When he, when he was born, what, did his cry just shake the earth? Or was he just this little baby? Did he just come out and start talking? You know, I don't know. Uh, but that'd be awesome. You know, hey, mom, what's up? Um, I'm the word of God. But he, it's going to be awesome to talk to Mary. But the angel came and said, hell, thou art highly favored. The Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. And the angel said unto her, fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He shall be great and shall be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father, David, which Jesus has yet to receive. That's what we always study here at, the, at New City and, and study in prophecy. That's the throne of David. It's a ruling political throne in Jerusalem that Jesus will sit on in the millennium. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there shall be no end. No end forever. You know, Mary was highly favored. Now, you were looked up, down upon if you were with child and not betrothed, obviously. If you were not, um, obviously Mary had Jesus out of wedlock. As, that's why in the Psalms, the people at the tavern called Jesus a bastard because they did, he supposedly didn't know his father. Obviously he did. But Mary was probably very embarrassed you know, just think, think about what she had to carry there and how her community and Israel would look at her. Not only did they hate the one that she was carrying, but they hated that she was carrying him. And so there's, this, there's a lesson there for all of us because in God's eyes, she was highly favored and carrying out a call, a mighty call. And you have that same call on your life to do something that the world's going to hate and the world will, will despise what you're doing in your call and walking for the Lord. So just remember that, that you, you should do it with and stand tall and be proud of what your God calls you to do. Okay, look at Isaiah 7 verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Now remember, this Israel was way out of favor with God and they were, they were rebellious. 
they were rebellious, they were disobedient, they were, and God is, is telling them, let me give you a sign to show you how I will deliver you. And remember the king of Israel at that time said, no, I, I don't want a sign. And God gets angry. And, and this is where this verse comes from. He's, he's upset with them. In Isaiah 7, 14, therefore, because you won't ask for a sign, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And in the Hebrew, actually, it's not just any virgin. It's a personal, specific, singular and specific title of the virgin. It's one. It's not just some random lady. It's someone that God had in mind. And then, of course, Isaiah 9, 6, which you see every year this time of year and all over Christmas cards and things. For unto us a child is born. And unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Look at the titles of Jesus there. Wonderful. There's only one place in the Bible that Jesus is called Wonderful. And remember, it's Samson's parents when they sacrifice to that man, and they didn't know who he was at first. And he comes to them. And, they, and he tells them to give me a sacrifice and they offer the, make a burnt offering on that altar and the fire from heaven consumes it. And, then the, and they shall say, and then they ask, well, what name should we say you are? Remember in the Hebrew it says, uh, call me, my name is Wonderful. In your English it doesn't say Wonderful, but in the Hebrew it does. And then he goes up to heaven. And that's one way you know is Jesus because if a sacrifice is offered and they're worshiping and it's accepted, then you know in the Old Testament that's Jesus. A lot of times you'll see they try to worship an angel or something and he'll say, uh, no, don't do that. I'm a fellow servant like you. So don't worship me, worship God. Okay, counselor, Jesus is the counselor. He is the counselor. He'll take care of anything you need in your life. The mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. You know, the counselor, this is one reason why uh, modern day psychology is, is frankly not very effective and kind of doomed. Uh, they don't use the word of God from Hebrews 4, that the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, divine asunder the soul and the spirit. So the mind, will, and emotions from the spirit. And when you use the word of God, Jesus is the word and he's the counselor and he'll deal with any trauma or anything in your life from the past and take care of it the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. So the child that's born represents his humanity. A son is given representing his divinity. Those are not synonymous terms. Okay, a child is born. That's the son of God. He, the child represents his humanity. And the son is given, representing the son of God. And Jesus is the I, the I am. And when we close here in a few minutes, what my challenge for all of you this year for Christmas is to, to crown him in your life this year. You know, we're, we're about to study this now of the gifts that were brought to him. And I just want you to notice that all the gifts were brought to Jesus. And we obviously honor and celebrate that by exchanging gifts with one another. You know, but don't forget to give something to him this year that he wants you, he wants all of you. Now, some Jewish people say this pivotal event of all human history to which the Feast of Trumpets, Rosh Hashanah, points is the return of Christ. So what if his descent into the air to gather us together, his church, is on the anniversary of his birth? Wouldn't that be cool? That'd be really cool. First Thessalonians 4, 15 through 18, for this we say unto you by the word of the Lord that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God. That's a feast of trumpets term. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the air, in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, Comfort one another with these words because you have to grit and, and stock up and try to survive the tribulation. No, that's, not, that's not what God says. Uh, comfort one another. You, these are comforting words that God's going to evacuate us out 
and call his ambassadors home before that happens. In 1 Corinthians 15, 51 through 53, behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump. That's again, a feast of trumpets term. For the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. That's when you get your resurrected body is at the rapture. For this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. Of course, only on Jesus's birthday would he give you the coolest gift in the world, which is an eternal resurrected body that shall never have death, sickness, anything ever again. And how cool is that? Now, most assume, let's talk about the Magi for a minute. Most assume there were three Magi since three gifts were brought to Jesus. You know, but however, the Bible doesn't number them. Okay, Mark 7, 13, the traditions, right? Nullify the word of God. They're called the Magi from the Latin form of the Greek word uh, magoni or magioi. It's transliterated from the Persian from a select sect of priests. Now, the ancient magi were a a hereditary priesthood of the Medes, the Persians and the Medes. They proved to be experts in the interpretation of dreams. Now, and thus Darius the Great established them over the state religion of Persia. So remember when Daniel, uh, when Nebuchadnezzar died and Babylon was taken over by the Persians And Daniel was promoted to head of the Magi because he could interpret dreams. And that's how he gave favor with Nebuchadnezzar. Now, the Magi became the supreme priestly caste of the Persian Empire, the the empire that conquered Babylon. And one of the titles given to Daniel was Rabamog, the chief of the Magi. He became the prime administer, administrator in two world empires, the Babylon and the Persian Empire, all because he trusted God. Despite everything that was going on around him, he trusted God. Darius appointed him a Jew over the previously hereditary priesthood. So he wasn't in that lineage, which is why all of those guys wanted to take him out and kill him. Because here's this guy, a Jew, that's given the headship over that priesthood that they're all a part of. That's why they tricked him into being thrown into lion's den. Remember, they make that law. And of course, he doesn't obey it because he's not going to disobey God. And he's fine with the consequences. And he gets thrown in the lion's den. And Daniel apparently was then entrusted with a messianic vision to be announced in due time by a star. And he gave this this vision and this prophecy to a secret sect of the Magi who were God-fearing people and for its eventual fulfillment. And since the days of Daniel, okay, the fortunes of both the Persian and the Jewish nations had been, they were closely connected So both nations had fallen under this Greek dominance, the Seleucid Empire, uh, when Alexander died. Subsequently, both had regained their independence. The Jews, uh, remember we talked about the Maccabees recently? Okay, the Maccabean leadership, the Jews had gained independence. And the Persians as the dominating ruling group within the Parthian Empire. So Pompey was the, the Roman conqueror of Jerusalem he attacked the Armenian, this Armenian outpost in Parthia in 63 BC, and they led a Roman legion in taking out Jerusalem, and a subsequent attack, the Parthian proper. Okay, so when you study this history, what you need to know is that there was this great tension between the Roman Empire and the Parthians, which were the Persian empires in modern-day Iraq, Iran, kind of east of Israel a little bit. And Israel was always caught in the middle of it. And over on the east in the Parthian Empire, the Persians, Parthian, they had the Magi. They were kind of the ruling uh, priesthood over there. Daniel was the head of it. He was entrusted with this vision and it was passed down through the generations to this priesthood that was kind of at odds with Rome. 
Okay, that's kind of the stage you need to understand, that the, Rome, the Romans did not like them, and so they kind of fought a lot, but Israel was always this buffer state in the middle. They always were caught in the battle, okay? And so what happened is um, Herod, so when the, the, there was a disastrous retreat by Rome, and including Herod, and, it, and they fled to, to Alexandria or Rome, and with Parthian cooperation, the Jewish sovereignty was restored. Now, Jerusalem was fortified with this garrison, and Herod then was given the title King of the Jews from Augustus Caesar. But yet, he didn't even sit in Jerusalem yet. It would be three years, including this five-month siege by the Roman troops, before he could actually make it back to Jerusalem. So he's given this title from Caesar. He's living in Rome. The Jews and the Parthians, they think they have kind of oust the Roman Empire and they're, and they're living fine at that point, um, sovereignty. Um, but Herod then regains the throne of this rebellious nation of Israel, okay, which, is, which was situated between these two armies fighting each other. Now, at any time, his subjects, the Israelites, might conspire in bringing the Parthians back to destroy him completely. So just get the picture that, that Herod was nervous constantly. He was, it was kind of like he was ruling over this guerrilla war state where they were rebellious and always trying to push out the Romans. And at any time, the, the Parthians or the Persian Empire their military convoy may just march in and wipe him out. And he didn't know when. So in Jerusalem, the sudden appearance of the Magi, it shocked them. It rocked their world. They, they were disturbed. And that's why in Matthew 2, verse 3, Herod and all of Jerusalem are shaken when, this, when the Magi show up. This was not you know, three guys on camels with a little chest of frankincense. This, this, was, this was like the United States military setting up base, you know, in, the, in Russia or something, and we're about to plow through. That's what this was. This was a, a military convoy. Okay, the Magi traveled in force. They had cavalry. Uh, they had escorts. The priesthood was surrounded by an army, a convoy. And they want to ensure their safe arrival into Israel, into that Roman territory, which is why it alarmed Herod and the populace of Jerusalem. Look at Matthew 2, 3. When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled. It's like one of the greatest um, unexaggerations, if that's a word, in the Bible. He wasn't just troubled. He was, he was terrified, okay, that this military had showed up and all Jerusalem with him. So the Israelites were frightened, wondering, is war about to break out? Are we about to be in the middle of a war? And here are the Magi in this great military convoy. And the request of Herod was, remember he has them come to him, the Magi, and he says, um, the request of Herod regarding the one who has been born king of the Jews Okay, this was an intentional insult. Remember the Magi show up to Herod and they say, hey, we are here who has been born king of the Jews, not the one that was appointed title king of the Jews. We're here for the one that actually has the birthright, the birthright. And that's in Matthew 2, 2, because there's Herod, this non-Jew Edomite who was appointed by Rome and given the title king of the Jews, but he wasn't. The one that just was born was king of the Jews. And they would, obviously the Magi didn't share with him where they were going, but consulting the scribes, Herod discovered from the prophecies in the Old Testament that the, pre, the promised one would be born out of Bethlehem Ephrathah. That's why we just study that in Micah 5. Micah 5 verse 2. Okay, if I can get this to go forward here. Is it not going? Can you push it forward, Aaron? There we go. All right, after finding Jesus and presenting their prophetic gift, remember the Magi are warned in a dream not to go back to Herod. 
so again, the Lord spoke to them through dream interpretation. Um, they were dream interpreters starting all the way back to Daniel. Thus they depart their own country ignoring, and they go to their own country ignoring Herod's request. They never came back to tell him where the location of Jesus was. Now the enemy always seeks to kill a move of God in its infancy. Just remember that. They, they wanted to, Herod and Rome wanted to kill Jesus before it's too late. That's why that he declares kill all the boys that are two years and younger. Okay, it took a, the Magi about two years to get there. We'll look at that in just a second. But they brought gold for his kingship, frankincense for his priesthood, and myrrh prophesying his death. And remember, myrrh it only releases its aroma when it's crushed. Um, it's, before it's crushed, it's kind of useless. And that's why they brought that. The gold representing his kingship, frankincense for his priesthood, and myrrh representing his death. His death. Because he would be crushed, and then he would release the Holy Spirit to all of us. That's why that typology is there. In the millennium, Jesus is only brought gold and frankincense because his death is behind him. And that's in Isaiah 60, verse 6. The multitude of the camels shall cover thee, the, dra the dromedaries of Median and Ephah. All they from Sheba shall come, and they shall bring gold and incense, or frankincense, when you actually break that down in the Hebrew. And they shall show forth the praises of the Lord. Boy, that's incredible. Can you go forward, Aaron? This isn't working again. You got to keep up with me. All right. So Matthew 2, verse 1. Now, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east of Jerusalem, saying, where is he that is born king of the Jews? This was an intentional slight at Herod. For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. Now, interesting that Jesus rode into Jerusalem through the eastern gate from the Mount of Olives. They saw his star in the east. Now, when Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded them where Christ should be born. And they said unto him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, and thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, art not the least among the princes of Judah. For out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had privily called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. You know, like he really cared. He just wanted to kill them, kill Jesus. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search diligently for the young child. And when ye have found him, Bring me word again that I may come and worship him also. Yeah, right. When they had heard the king, they departed and lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them. It's amazing. I don't know. It's just speculation. The magi, the ones that were actually going to Jesus, may have been the only ones to see this till it came and stood out where the young child was. Verse 10 here, when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And when they were coming to the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshiped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed into their own country another way. And they left, and they fell down and worshiped him. At this point, Jesus was at least two years old. So this wasn't, you know, an infant swaddled together. That's about how long their journey was from the east. And that's why Herod wanted to kill all babies two years and younger, because he knew it was about that time. The star was the Holy Spirit, the Shekinah glory of the Lord. And if you, if you study that in the Old Testament, actually the star, they refer to him. They refer, they refer to the star as him, which is amazing. And my question for all of you today is, you know, do you really know him and worship him? And you've got to crown him in your life this Christmas because that's what it's all about. You know, Jesus isn't obviously a two-year-old infant anymore. He's grown up, he was crucified He's, he's in heaven sitting at the right hand of the Father. 
and you get the opportunity this Christmas to bring something to him that maybe you've never brought to him, which is yourself, and to crown him in your life. You know, the entire world was turned upside down at the arrival of Jesus. He literally turned BC into AD, and time is judged at his birth. And it's not about whether Jesus was really born on December or September or, what, or any of those things. It's, it's about celebrating him. And that's what it's about. So this Christmas, I, I pray that all of you gather with family, that you, you exchange gifts and celebration of him and give yourself to him because that's what it's all about. It's all about that, is giving yourself to him. Now, this, this is a poem uh, that a pastor in San Diego wrote, and it's been modified all throughout the years. But I just, I love to read this every year at this service because I think it's so cool. Uh, but this has been modified a lot. And let's just read this. Its title of it is My King. You know, he's the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel, but he's also king of all the ages, king of heaven, king of glory, king of kings, and the Lord of lords. He's a prophet before Moses, a priest after Melchizedek, a champion like Joshua, an offering in the place of Isaac, a king from the line of David, a counselor above Solomon, beloved, rejected, and exalted like Joseph, and yet far more. The heavens declare his glory and the firmament shows his handiwork. He who is, who was, and who always will be, the first and the last, he's the Alpha and the Omega, the Aleph and the Ta, the A to the Z. He's the Ego Emi, the I Am that I Am, the I Am that I Am, the voice of the burning bush, the captain of the Lord's hosts, the conqueror of Jericho. He's our kinsman redeemer. He's our avenger of blood, and he is our city of refuge. He was crucified on a cross of wood, and he made the very hill on which it stood. By him were all things made that were made, and without him was not anything made that was made. By him are all things held together, and in him dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily, the very God of God. He became the firstfruits of them that slept. He's our performing high priest, our personal prophet, our reigning king, He's enduringly strong, entirely sincere, and eternally steadfast. He's imperially powerful, immortally graceful, impartially merciful. He stands alone in himself. He's unique, preeminent, supreme, unparalleled. He's the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of theology He's the supreme problem in higher criticism. He's the son of God, and there is no means of measuring his limitless love. It was written in blood on that wooden cross erected in Judea almost 2,000 years ago. And the question for all of us is, do you really know him? He was born of a woman so that we could be born of God. He humbled himself so that he could be lifted up. He became a servant so that we could be made joint heirs with Christ. He suffered rejection so that we could become his friends. He denied himself so that we could freely receive all things. He gave himself so that he could bless us in every way. He's available to the, temp the tempted and the tried, but he blesses the young, cleanses the lepers, defends the feeble, delivers the captives, discharges the debtors, forgives the sinners, franchises the meek, guards the besieged, heals the sick, provides strength to the weak, regards the age, rewards the age, rewards the diligent, serves the unfortunate, sympathizes, and he saves. His offices are many, his reign is righteous, his promises are certain, his goodness is limitless. His light is matchless. His love never changes. His grace is sufficient. His mercy is everlasting. His word is enough. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. He's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's irresistible. He's invincible. 
The heavens of heavens cannot contain him. Man cannot explain him. The Pharisees couldn't stand him, but soon learned that they couldn't stop him. They railroaded him through six illegal trials, and yet the witnesses couldn't agree against him. And the personal representative of the world, the ruler of the world, couldn't find any fault with him. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him. The grave couldn't hold him. He has always been and always will be. He had no predecessor and he will have no successor. You can't impeach him and he's not going to resign. His name is above every name that at the name of Yeshua, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. His is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Hallelujah and amen. 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 So this Christmas, give all of yourself to him. And if you don't know him and you found us somehow, Romans 10, 9, it's so simple that if thou shalt confess with the mouse, with your mouth, Jesus, and believe in your heart that he was, he was raised from the dead, you shall be saved. So do that today if you don't know him. Make him Lord of your life. And as you gather together this Christmas, I just, I pray a blessing upon all of you and your families that you enjoy this time. Enjoy this time. And as you exchange gifts, just remember he gave the ultimate gift for us. And Lord, we thank you so much for this time together. God, I pray that you'd be with us as we leave this place. And Lord, as we gather together with family in the week ahead, I pray that Lord, you would anoint our time together, that it would be powerful, that it would be focused on you, that Lord, there would be the Shekinah glory reigning over our households because Lord, you are preeminent in our lives. As, as we bring all of ourselves to you this year, be with us. And Lord, as we gather together to worship you on Friday night here from six to seven, in that hour, Lord, I pray that it is so powerful and that you meet us right here and let us leave changed that evening, Lord. We love you and be with us in this week ahead. In Jesus' matchless name we pray, amen.